Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of the STEMcast podcast. The goal of our podcast is to create an accessible resource for students at all levels of STEM to be mentored by leading professionals and advance their careers. Your hosts for today's podcast are Santa and myself, Roham. Today we are very excited to bring in a very special guest, Dr. Black, who we will learn a bit more about over the course of this podcast. Okay, Dr. Black, um, how about let's start off with a brief introduction about yourself, like your background, job title, whatnot? Sure. So I'm Dr. Amanda Black, and I'm a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Ottawa. So I work at both the Ottawa Hospital, mainly at the, the General and Riverside campuses, as well as the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario. So as far as kind of, you know, how I got there, I did um, my undergraduate training at Western and I did my medical school there and then I came to Ottawa to do a residency and then I did a fellowship in Queens and then I had a chance to work in uh, different parts of of Canada as well as doing some additional training in both England and Switzerland and uh, did my master's of public health at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore so all of those things have been kind of great training for me as I come back here and now I practice as uh, obstetrician gynecologist. So I do both obstetrics as well as gynecology here in Ottawa. And as a professor, I also have um, a role teaching undergraduate medical students and medical residents and OBGYN residents as well as residents from other programs. And uh, in addition to that, I also have uh, hold the research chair position. So I'm an associate scientist at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute, and I do research there with an area of focus and further research on contraception and family planning. Okay. And uh, what are your clinical roles and responsibilities as a gynecologist and obstruction working in Ottawa? So I'm pretty fortunate in Ottawa because I have a pretty varied practice. So as I mentioned, I do both obstetrics. So yes, I'm in the in the hospital delivering babies in the middle of the night. And I also do gynecology. So the gynecology, we have um, both the, the surgical aspect as well as kind of what we call office-based, meaning it's more kind of medical management or some procedures that you can do in, in, the, in the office setting. And the area of interest where I focus in in that, again, is contraception and family planning, but I still am able to see a wide range of gynecology type cases. So a little bit of mix of, of everything as, as far as being an obstetrician gynecologist. Wow, awesome. That's very fascinating. Well, um, do you want to get into more specifically the types of cases that you specialize in treating or you see on a daily basis? Yeah, sure. So, you know, the nice thing about obstetrics and gynecology is you can really tailor it to what your passion is and what you want to do. Um, So no day is ever the same. And I'm feel like I'm really fortunate. I don't have a a job where it's, you know, eight to four, Monday to Friday, same thing day in, day out. So for example, one day I'll be in the hospital doing an obstetrics clinic where I get to see all of my obstetrics patients who, you know, 
can can vary as far as the how complicated their pregnancy is so I can get but I get to see a lot of young otherwise healthy women I get to see women who are having more issues with their pregnancy or complications with their pregnancy so that's kind of nice to be able to follow women through that journey so that could be one day and then the next day I, I, I switch over and I change gears and I go into gynecology clinic where I see women who have um you know, contraceptive issues. So complex contraception cases. So I get really kind of put my thinking cap on and, and I have um, trainees with me where we're, I'm able to teach them different procedures and counseling on patients. So that's kind of fun. And then, so another day that week, I might come in and I'm on call that day. So I show up and offer my call and I get to do you know, deliveries and cesarean sections and manage patients from the emergency department. Um, not to say that that can't be chaotic. So um, the, the chaos, I think you have, have to have a little bit of, um, like I said, an addiction to adrenaline to do that sometime. Um, but so that would make be another day. And then uh, another day in my week, I might spend that doing my research. So meeting with uh, the research teams, developing protocols, writing papers, um, and then again, another day, maybe back to a clinic, but doing a completely different aspect of care. So, um, you know, I also have I practiced at the children's hospital. So sometimes I would be there doing uh, cases or, or seeing clinics or working at one of our outreach centers. And in the midst of all that, there's all the, you know, the, all the other things outside of clinical medicine, but that's kind of what clinical um, roles and responsibilities that I have. So yeah, it's kind of nice because it's a big mix and I, it's really hard to get bored because everything changes from day to day. I'm just trying to keep track of my schedule can sometimes be a bit of a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I can only imagine. That sounds very hectic. I mean, uh, one way of uh, thinking about it possibly is you can't get bored. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now, um, you mentioned both, you know, the as both aspects of your job as um, talking to patients and also uh, the deliveries and whatnot. Um, but in either either aspects, what role or significance do you think the, the patient interaction plays in your job specifically? Oh, I mean, the patient interaction is is huge. And I think that's one of the really nice things about the specialty is the degree of interaction and and the fact that, you know, I'm I'm able to be there for both, you know, exciting and happy times for patients, but also to be able to help them through more um, difficult times as well. So you know, certainly the communication aspect is so key and, and also recognizing that sometimes with um, obstetrics and gynecology, especially, you may be, um, you know, dealing with, with patients who have significant other issues or potentially past traumas, and they can be in very vulnerable situations when they're coming to you, because sometimes what we're, you know, just as part of the type of work we do, um, we may be kind of triggering some of those um, emotions that they may have had from past traumas. So the importance of recognizing that. So the communication piece is, you know, certainly a huge aspect of what we've done. And, you know, as we look now, as we're doing these podcasts and Zoom interviews, also figuring out how to be able to transition that out into this virtual setting as well, right? Because we, you know, used to, there's something about being face-to-face -face and then suddenly switching to virtual. How do we maintain that? 
and communication because you know as as you kind of alluded to it's an extremely important part not just for obstetrics and gynecology but certainly for all of medicine no for sure um so your clinical research is also a normal aspect of your professional career um could you talk to us about the research and publication that you've done in the past and the impact that you hope to have of course, yeah. So I think, um, you know, my approach to, to my research is not about how many papers I can write, but really how we can, you know, advocate for um, our patients and you know, for, for, for women. Um, so, you know, how when, I, when I'm looking at what types of research I'm doing, I'm looking at how can I actually advocate, will this be able to use to change policy if I, if I make certain findings with what I'm doing right now? And also, I mean, ultimately the goal is to improve patient care. And in some cases, you know, if you're, if you're doing research in education as well, how can I improve the educational experience or where are the deficiencies in the educational experience? Or maybe part of that improving the educational experience has, stands around how do we encourage trainees to be better advocates, you know, as, as healthcare advocates? So I think that's kind of my approach there. And, and you know, always with anything, right, it's where, where your passion is. So if you're passionate about a certain thing, then certainly makes it a lot more exciting to do the research in, in that area. If you think you're actually going to be able to make a difference, if you're going to be able to change things, like just to do, you know, research for research sake and to publish something, that's, you know, it's not really what, what I'm, I'm looking to do. What I'm looking to do is if I do something, will we, that be able to kind of change um, the landscape and, and, and change it obviously in a positive way? Yeah. Do you think there's going to be any new exciting approaches or technologies that have been kind of made in the recent years to improve the safety of pregnancy, child delivery, especially with like the more challenging cases? So I think what we're starting to see in obstetrics is a change in the patient profile, right? So we're starting to see that the pregnancies are becoming a bit more complex. Our patient population is changing. Um, you know, the average age of first pregnancy is increasing. So with that, we certainly can see some increased complications with increasing maternal age. Um, we're also seeing changes, you know, just in things like our, our patient's body mass index, which can put them at an increased risk of other medical complications of pregnancy. So I think what we really need to look at as well, as our patient population is changing, how can we adapt the services we provide? Do we still do it in the same way we've always done it? Or do we do it in a different way that may um, be better for patient care? I think a real change that's probably happened uh, in the last 20 years is a real shift in focus from just, you know, not just being the medical, this is how we need to do it, but to looking at the patient experience and making sure that the patient has a good experience, as well as quality of care that's provided. And certainly the focus for us now is really shifted to quality and systems improvements and how can we make sure that things don't, um, we don't have adverse events and things don't slip through the cracks. I mean, the reality is, I think adverse events are going to happen and it's not a matter of 
blame it's it but it's more the concept of a just culture like this isn't any we're not trying to assign blame but let's look at the whole system and where can we do better and i think that's a real shift in how we provide care so particularly for maternal newborn care i think that's a real shift and certainly for the positive and and just ensuring that patients are part of that shared decision making process too um, that's really changing the way that um, you know obstetrics and gynecology, but particularly obstetrics, have been practiced over the last 20, 30 years. So making sure that the patient has more autonomy and they're involved in that decision-making process throughout the, the journey that they have. So I think those are really positive changes in how we provide care for patients that's uh, I, that's uh, very amazing and it's it's very empowering I, 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 I believe for you know women all around um, Canada to have that experience uh, going through that journey as you said now um, I know that you uh, mentioned just culture and uh, the shift in how you uh, that you treat uh, women all across the country but uh, and that's throughout the journey. I'm t I also noticed that you uh, yourself specifically have been responsible for authoring a lot of um, national guidelines for pre-journey, and that's more specifically on topics of contraception and like gynecology. Could you talk to us a bit about what goes into the, that process from start to finish, and how you work with like different professionals and stakeholders to accomplish it? Yeah, so first thing, it's not a short process. <laughs> Guideline development is a long process. And as you pointed out, one of the really important aspects of it is making sure that you engage uh, multiple stakeholders in that. So when I say multiple stakeholders, um, not just physicians, but, you know, potentially patients, depending on the type of guidelines, so potentially patients, members of the public, um, pharmacists, nursing, uh, making sure that you have the right support from the from the point of view of your literature views, et cetera. So maybe librarians that are experienced with that. So certainly it's not just one person that sits down and writes a guideline. It's definitely a team approach and that uh, team approach uh, does take time, right? Because you're, you're mobilizing an entire team. I think I've been very fortunate because I've had the opportunity to work a lot with the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada, who are a real force for as far as advocacy for um, women's health in particular in, in Canada. And, and also, you know, I say women's health, but they've also have a, um, a, a policy or certainly a commitment as well, along with the policy to recognize um, uh, inclusivity and so that it's in there our guidelines are inclusive of um of all people who they may be applicable to so the the process i mean when, when we talk about guidelines we always want to figure out okay where are the identified needs where are the identified knowledge gaps what do we're what do people need to know and what do they maybe not feel super comfortable sometimes? And certainly, uh, you know, medicine's constantly changing and, uh, and we don't practice the same way now as we did, you know, hundred years ago, which is a good thing. We do occasionally use leeches, but not in obstetrics and gynecology, <laughs> but uh, you know, it changes, right? So to be abreast of that constantly is really, really hard and to look up every article. So the nice thing about a guidelines is you kind of synthesize that providers. So for us, 
it's like I, I said, I tend to work with the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists on that. It's a matter of submitting the proposals to the Guideline Management Oversight Committee, and that committee reviews it and says, yes, this is identified need, or occasionally the Guideline Committee will go to one of the subcommittees and say, look, this is a topic that our members have been asking about, so maybe this is something we need to do. Once you've done that, then you identify um, all of the the people to be involved with that and again we always look for representation from across the country and from different um, allied healthcare professionals and potentially anyone else who we think would be appropriate for that guideline and then you know again there's a support team there's you know reviews that have to go into place there's multiple drafts that go back and forth once those are done, those actually go to the guideline management oversight committee to review. And then from there, they go to the board of directors to approve, and then they go to the journal. So there are multiple steps. So that's if we look at some of the guidelines I've been involved with here. If we look at other um, guidelines involved in, for example, the Centers for Disease Control in um, the US, that once again is a, that's a large um, large team of people that are are in providing input to those guidelines um, multiple meetings taking place background reviews literature searches grade approaches pico questions so a lot of work goes into them but i think the value as far as being able to provide good care for people and to have kind of a standard of care because if everybody's just kind of doing their own thing um, based on their own experience, they may not be providing the best possible care um, or may not be aware of the new things that have come out, new technologies and new approaches, one of the new recommendations. So, I mean, for me, that's one of the most exciting things is to be able to work on um, guidelines that will really help to change practice and also, you know, for use for our, our trainees as well, so that they can become comfortable in all of those uh, areas as well. No, for sure. That's a, that's, that's very amazing. And also a very extensive, uh, um, you know, um, system there, uh, which for sure is required. And I'm very grateful for that. But uh, you mentioned uh, addressing the needs that are identified in your guidelines. Is there, other than just addressing the needs that are, have been identified and uh, trying to um, accomplish that, is there any broader, broad, broader mission that uh, you want to achieve through this initiative and uh, try to uh, ch make changes that are maybe, you know, you, you see a better outcome out of? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things when you're writing guidelines, you have the opportunity not to just provide the the you know technical, this is how you manage abnormal uterine bleeding, right? It's it's you know, if I look at the the guidelines we wrote on on contraception in Canada, uh, a good portion of that at the beginning specifically talks about the importance of involving policymakers and um you know, advocating for women to have access to, or not just women, but all Canadians to have access to effective methods of contraception. I'm bringing up the issue of the number of unplanned and, and unintended pregnancies in Canada and how can we address that? You know, as a developed country, we should we not be doing better with those things? So the power of doing that in a guideline is then it becomes a, 
the recommendation from the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada or the Canadian Pediatric Society is that all women under the age of 25 should have access to uh, contraception free of charge. That's a, that's a big deal, right? And taking that to policymakers is saying, well, here's the economic backing for that. This is what we've looked at when we look at our cost modeling analysis. But at the same time, you know, this is what our national societies are also recommending. So I think there's real strength in that. And that's one of the advantages of having guidelines with recommendations is that it, it, it just that one, you know, or two sentences can really be powerful. Similarly, you know, the United Nations, one of their, um, one of their statements is that access to family planning is a human right. That's a pretty powerful statement coming from the United Nations, right? So having things like that, that you're able to say, okay, yeah, that's right. This is, this should be a human right. And how do we go about doing this? So I think that's one of the real benefits of having them is that not only do they just, yeah, this is what you do day to day. This is how I manage it in clinic, but also, wow, that's powerful. That's changed how I think. That's changed my frame of reference. I'm going to look at this differently now when I'm talking to people, when I'm kind of deciding what's important and it can also affect how the policymakers respond to things as well. Yeah, I think that's really important that uh, we use specific words uh, with our guidelines that we put out just because they're taken the way, a different way based on how it's worded. Um, so what is your approach in teaching medical students and residents about OBGYN and how do you ensure that the students are best prepared to excel in their careers? Um, and have you, even though you're teaching them, do you think you've learned some things from the students that have helped you become better personally or professionally? So I think that's one of the things about in medicine, you're always learning. So you're learning from someone, either from your colleagues or from your students or from other teachers or seminars. So it's a lifelong learning when you go into a field of medicine. So if you're not keen on a lifelong learning, then medicine's probably not for you. Um, you know, my, my approach to medical students and residents, you know, specifically about OB-GYN, I think that it's, um, I mean, you, you, I can teach the, you know, the basics of, of what they need to, to know or what they will need to know as part of their careers if they decide not to go into OB-GYN. Um, I think it's, it's important that you're realistic about what the job entails but I think you know anytime someone goes into medicine or is considering a career in medicine we're extraordinarily fortunate in all of the opportunities a career in medicine gives us because yes you can practice clinically but um, as you might have noticed my career is not just clinical medicine right so you can be a researcher you can be an administrator you can be you can go into private industry. Um, you can, you know, become a CEO of a major company. <laughs> Certainly, um, medicine requires a lot of skills or teaches a lot of skills that allow you to go off in multiple directions. So I think, you know, talking to my students, just making sure that they realize there are multiple opportunities that they can use. And I, and I think one of the keys always is find your passion. So talking to, to medical students and residents about what they want to do, find your passion. Because if you find your passion, you'll never feel like you're going to work, right? I've never said, oh, I have to go to work today. 
I mean, maybe if I have to do an overnight call, I think that, but I mean, I, I feel very, very lucky that I don't, and when my kids ask me, why do you, why, why do you have to go to work today? I don't say, oh, because I have to, you know, pay for your school and pay for your clothes and pay for your food. It's like, oh, because I get to do this and this and this. So that's pretty lucky that I get to be able to say that. Um, yeah, so I think that's what I would tell tell them, or certainly that's my advice, is find your passion. And if you're a resident of obstetrics and gynecology, what was your passion within that field? There's, I mean, there's certainly areas of obstetrics and gynecology that I have no interest in, in doing, but I'm so glad that someone else is passionate about that because they do it and they do it really well, right? So when you have a passion for something, you will do a good job at it. It will not feel like you're going to work. So again, and that's my my uh, kind of have my my advice when I when I'm talking to to students and for residents. And again, as I said, you know, do we learn from residents? And well, of course, <laughs> of course, we we learn. And I think part of what we learn is, um, you know, sometimes you do things and you do things because you've been doing it for so long, like you've been doing it for 25 years and you think, okay, well, yeah, that's how I always do it. But to have someone say, why are you doing that? You think, oh, right. Am I I doing the right, you know, is this, is this the right way to do it? And, you know, I'll often have an answer and sometimes I'll think, well, you know, that's a good question. You know, maybe we should be doing this differently or they'll bring up different, you know, so, so just having someone, kind of questioning things. Why are you, why are we doing it this way? You know, have you, have you done, you know, have you done it another way? Have you guys ever thought about doing this way? You know, I, well, I saw this, I was somewhere else and um, I, this is what they did. Was that something you would do? So I think it's, like I said, it's uh, ongoing learning. It's lifelong learning and just to take advantage of, of that. So I look at that as taking advantage of, of, of their uh, inquisitiveness because it uh, it allows me to continue learning and to you know to challenge myself to find the reasons why we're doing things and look at how we could potentially do things better and of course um, you know as we always go through different changes right I mean my uh, my supervisors when I trained were used to basically living in the hospital doing one-on-one call right and they were on call at the hospital every single night and we've certainly seen that evolution um, change right which is probably for the better as opposed to having people burnt out and not having any life outside of medicine I think it's good to have people be a bit more rounded and I think that's something that's kind of fostered as people come through and question well is this really the way you want to be practicing and the lifestyle you want for the rest of your life and um, again I think ultimately that probably translates into healthier healthcare providers and um, better patient care. Thank you so much Dr. Black you actually are, you know you are covered the question we we're going to ask you anyway about the advice that you would like to give so that's perfect I'm not going to ask you that again that sounds that looks like uh, that's all the questions we wanted to ask you I really appreciate the, your time today and uh, thank you so much for being here with us and uh, going over some of the questions we had for you and uh, for everyone at home and we hope that you enjoyed this episode and learned a little more about Dr. Black We hope to see you in two weeks for our next episode and have a great day, everyone. Thanks very much for having me, guys. That was very enjoyable. Thanks very much.